the Gilda's maximum lawyers community of legal entrepreneurs who are taking their businesses and lives to the next level. As a Guild member, you'll build relationships, be held accountable, and learn strategies specifically designed to get you unstuck and accelerate your plan for growth. Members are also granted exclusive access to masterminds hosted around the country. Our next event is coming up, and we're heading to Scottsdale, Arizona. There's something truly magical about the power of these in-person connections where real-time breakthroughs happen. Picture this. You're surrounded by like-minded law firm owners tackling your business and mindset challenges together. The energy is electric, the insights are transformative, and the results are game-changing. Investing in yourself is the best decision you'll ever make. The knowledge, strategies, and breakthroughs you'll gain are priceless assets that will supercharge your practice and propel you forward. Join the Guild and secure your ticket to Scottsdale at the best possible price by visiting maxlawevents.com. Welcome to the podcast edition of Maximum Growth Live, the number one program for lawyers who want to grow their practices. Each week, our hosts, Seth Price and Jay Ruain, tackle the fundamental questions about how to grow the profit and profitability of your law firm. To watch the program live, submit your questions and hear the latest episode. Tune in every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern on Facebook for our live show. Maximum Growth Live is a production of Maximum Lawyer Media. Welcome to another edition of Maximum Growth Live. I'm one of your hosts, Jay Ruane, CEO of FirmFlex, your social media marketing agency for lawyers, as well as the managing partner of Ruane Attorneys, a civil rights and criminal defense firm here in the Constitution State of Connecticut. With me, as always, hanging out down in our nation's capital is my man, Seth Price. Seth is founding partner of Price Benowitz, your D.C., Maryland, Virginia, and South Carolina, as well as the creator and grand poobah and president. No, no, you're not the president. You're, what are you? The That's it. Founder. CEO. Founder. You're uh, Blue Shark. Blue Shark, which sets the industry standard for high-quality lawyer SEO. Uh, and Seth, that actually brings me to my first question of the day. Well, the first question is, how's your week going? Week's going good. Like we've been talking, yours, been, yours is going better good. than mine. Exactly, Jay. Every time I speak to Jay, another another uh, layer of the onion is peeled of something. But you know, look, I, I feel like we have a lot of balls in the air, a lot of good stuff. We made some transitions. I've talked about where we've upgraded some management and really, you know, starting it like trying to leverage the systems. And every time, again, at, you're the king of systems. I feel like sometimes you're the king of one-offs. And every time we do a one-off, it's disaster. So the the goal is to do less one-offs, more systems. Uh, I feel like I'm in that direction. So it's been a good week. Yeah, you know, it's funny. In our in our systems group, I've been posting some stuff about managing employees, how to check in with them weekly, how to do an annual review is actually going to be posted uh, during the show. I set it up as a scheduled post. Uh, but one of the things that's, that's, uh, that's crazy to me is just how many systems need to function well in order to have a really good functioning law office. I mean, there's so many things going simultaneously. Absolutely. Let me ask you a question. So this literally just happened before we started recording. So, uh, you know, we had some updates in our intake for the PI department. It happens. We're, it's always evolving. We had some management changes. And I noticed some stuff cracking where stuff wasn't being followed. So we're doing a meeting. 
And there's no, I don't, is there a system for this? You know, the, the head of the team sent out an email to the team. We're going to do a meeting. It was 10 days from now. I'm like, why? It's like, oh yeah, somebody's getting a Moderna shot, this and that. I'm like, okay, why, why can't we just set the meeting, pick the next possible date, which would be tomorrow when most people are in. If one person's out, you record it and you do it. But if you waited for perfect attendance for meetings, you know, again, as your team gets larger, it may never happen. And the idea, not that you want to have a meeting without your constituents there, but the idea that as you get a team, and here you have a team of 14 people, like any given day, somebody's going to miss it for some God-owned reason. I, what I would like to do is have a process where the video is sent out afterwards, we record the Zoom, and there's something that's sent back that says, attest that they've seen it. That's the piece that I think I'm struggling with because we, we have systems. We do lawyer meetings on a every two-week basis, and there's certain stuff. We're trying to push certain processes and procedures that we've updated or, or changed, wanting to let them know when a system changes. And the problem that I'm having is what do you do when people aren't there and how do you ensure that they get the full effect of that live meeting watched as a recording? So let me give you some input on this. Um, back in my younger days, owned a piece of a bar. There were 20 of us who owned a piece of the bar and we had a meeting every Monday night. And Monday night's meeting was mandatory. And if you didn't show up, you paid a thousand dollars. And and now this can't happen in, in your firm, right? Um, and the reason being was these meetings are important to move the business forward. And so there were zero excuses. Well, you're on your honeymoon, fine. Pay the thousand dollars, you can miss the meeting. And you know what? It got people there. But that's what we so that that's sort of an approach I take with the partners. If we're calling a partners meeting, there is no getting out of it, you know, that type of thing. But when it comes to your employees, we go with the quorum, you know, that Robert's rule of order. Do we have enough people here to have do we have seventy five or eighty percent? Let's assume you get eighty percent. It's not the percentage, it's the idea of you're putting this stuff out there. You're letting people know their new systems. Oh, I missed the meeting as if it's gone and in a vacuum. And that's the piece because then it's a negative incentivized. You had the thousand dollars there, but I have people that I need to get bought in. Usually the person you need most bought in is the person with some deadbeat excuse for not being there. And then the question is, how do you sort of do that checks and balances? The person's already you know, the weak link. Do you, do you have some sort of like, I wish there was so you know, some sort of sign I've you know, so what we do in that situation is we record everything. We actually transcribe it. We'll send them the notes and the notes will be on a slide and you got to progress through all the slides. And at that point, they've gone. I mean, at that point, it's I mean, they could click, 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 click furiously to get to the end to just click that. I, I accept. But there's ways to track people's. Uh, you know, filling out a form, I and on every page they got to add something. I need a slideshow for the transcription. So what we do is we do a slideshow with a Google form, a slideshow with a form. You know, what's your input on this question? You know, throughout the process. So if you got fifteen pages, you're getting five responses, so they actually have to participate in the stuff, uh, and, and it's it's just necessary, I think. Uh, I find, and it and it does. It, it's taken a lot of iterations to get to that point. Um, but when you have a disparate workforce, when you have a distance workforce, uh, even you know, it, it just helps to make sure that everyone's sort of on the same page uh, that way. Um, the question I had for you was a digital marketing question, and it came up recently. Somebody reached out to me and wanted my opinion of something. Uh, I, th I think probably only because they don't know who you are, like they don't know you personally, and they felt they know me from a, a criminal lawyer group, and they want to do it. So here's the thing: they came to me. They said, "I love this idea of a ten point client commitment." Uh, 
and I saw on another lawyer's website, and I want to put it on my website. Uh, and it's, it's basically, I want to use the exact same language. Um, am I going to get penalized for having duplicate content from another person's website on mine? And here was my response. Number one, I don't think that's the duplicate content that everyone talks about because duplicate content from my understanding is I have 15 pages on my website. Every word is exactly the same, but maybe the name of the town is different. Right. That that's my understanding of having, you know, you know, just gaming it with a bunch of pages. But this this client commitment isn't necessarily going to be something that somebody searches for. Right. You know, and if it's on somebody yeah. in Atlanta and somebody in Philly, you know, the, the local searchers, it may be the difference maker that makes them call you because they read it and they like it. But it's not something that you need to rank for. So you don't really worry about having some content that mirrors something on some other website thousands oh, no, no, of no, miles that, that away. Is duplicate content. No, no, no. That is, you know, bo both are issues. But no, duplicate content does from another website. If you copy content, they're going to index their content, not yours. Right. But that if said, but if it's not something that I care, if, I'm not caring if I rank for that. Look, as an SEO nerd, I don't like it. My feeling is for two reasons. One is you shouldn't be ripping somebody off. It's one thing to emulate it and take it and sort of make it your own. But without permission, I, I just think it's bad form, A. And B, um, and they're going to see it because when they run their duplicate content check, you're now the a-hole who placed it. So I think it's just wrong. Take for the SEO. I just don't think it's the right thing to do. Second is make it your freaking own. Okay. Go go and, and go and take it and, and don't just copy it. Look, you take somebody else's core values and you copy it for maybe you haven't thought about it. Like make it your own. Is it is it Okay. So yes, it is duplicate content if it's the same thing from another website. Is it the end of the world if it's 10 little points within it? No, it's, it's going to bring you down. It's certainly not going to, it's not good for SEO, right? It's not a good right. thing. It's a bad thing. But is it really meaningful if it's not, but if it's on your homepage, you don't want something that uh, it was, was going to be, you know, buried in the footer, you know, that type of thing. They can reference buried it. Buried in the footer is different, but it doesn't sound that way. If you're doing a freaking 10 core, your 10 talking points, it sounds like something's going to be front and center. So look, first, stay away from duplicate content, period. It's not like it's this penalty that's going to wipe you off the face of the earth. It's not a good practice. Second, I'm going to take you out of SEO for a minute. It's just a dick move to rip somebody off without permission, sure. um, if not work, right? And, and third, the, the whole point of this is that you internalize it and you believe it, not like, oh, that's a good idea, me too, but rather, right. what is it? And I'll give you the four, the final one, which is you damn well better embrace that because one of the things that I always got when I first started, I went to ethics lawyers and talked about, you know, what should you should have on a site or not have on a site. And one of the things they said is never have something like you should always or you must get rid of definitive terms because what happens if you don't do it? Now you've created liability and you don't want that. So right. again, for all those reasons, you know, yes, it is duplicate content. No, is it like the end of the world? But like, it's not a good practice. Should you be ripping people off? No, like emulate, like you know, you, change you know, up the language, work it right, around comment, a little. Like, you don't, don't, and and at the end of the day, don't be an a hole. Okay, so okay, so that that expands my understanding. My understanding of what duplicate content was, was having multiple pages on your website with the exact same thing with an eye towards having a lot of pages on your website no, no, rather than actually, that, that's second tier. What we're talking about there is the actual, most people think of duplicate content. 
which is from another site into yours. On your own site is a whole nother thing because it would be great just to cut and paste and put the name of a town and have the same content. That that's that's a no go as well. So it, it both are issues for different reasons, but uh, neither are. Well, that, that's a, that's a really good point. So you know, we have a lot of listeners and a lot of viewers out there who may you know be in you know, you know, just pick a random city, be in philly right and they want to rank for camden and they want to rank for uh you know Bryn Mawr or, or westchester you know they're looking for other towns around so they might say okay this content looks really good for philly can i just copy that yeah, swap that, out the names of the towns? Right. We, okay we talk and, about that a lot no yeah the answer is and it sucks because is the law the same in yeah. in, in each of those next it's the same right but Get something localized. Talk about the courts. Talk about the jurisdictions. Talk about anything localized. Make it local so that Google sees this is a unique answer for this area. It's a bit of a game. I get it. And it gets worse if you're doing something like immigration where the laws could be same nationally. You know, but you've I got you got to keep it original. You can't just cut and paste and copy. You got it. Like Google is trying to say, hey, what's the best answer for this town? And in one sense, you could have this one beautifully written page. It's got to be localized or it's not going to work the same. So it's not even just mixing up the paragraphs. It's writing fresh content. It yeah, may, you don't, you it don't may have it the right. same don't, ideas. Don't but. game it. Don't spin it. Like, right, that, that's the right answer. If you do that, you're going to, like, that way, every time the algorithm updates, you're not going to get hit for a thin penalty. You're going to have yeah. good stuff. That's why, you know, 99 times out of 100, when something updates, I'm like, I'm thankful because it's getting rid of riffraff and putting our stuff further up. You know, it's funny. I did that years ago. Uh, I had like incredibly thin content. What I did is I created a five-page website uh, and created town names in each of the in, in, in a like a sidebar menu. And when you would click on the town name, it would use PHP and spin up those five pages with the exact same content, but just swapping out the name of the town. Uh, it, so so it was really a five-page website that could look like it was a thousand-page website. It crushed it. In Yahoo, for a period and they, of time, for a period of time, you would Google me, and I would own like the yeah, first I remember, fifty I, I days. Yeah, right. and then and then Google never touched yeah. it. Google oh, never indexed it, and I was like, well, you know, and 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 it just got me knowing. Like See now, Seth, that's that's just phenomenal news, and and this is the kind of stuff. This is why I like having these conversations because you know it, it's it's a it's a lot of stuff that you need to know as a law firm owner, and one of the things that. Uh, we need to know about and start thinking about, I guess, is the exit plan, plan right? Like the, some sort of strategy to get out of this. Because as I'm driving around, I'm thinking, when am I going to get off this crazy train? Uh, and that actually is somebody who we have uh, today who can help us out with that. So why don't you tell yeah, us a little bit absolutely. about uh, who, our, who our guest is and uh, what yeah, we're going to talk Tom, about. The, the founder of the Law Practice Exchange. I didn't even know it existed till not that long ago. It's basically a marketplace for law firms. Uh you know, it makes sense. You know, we see the stuff that's happening in Arizona and Utah, and it, clearly it's a trend happening across the country. You know, it's frustrating because I see from the Blue Shark side, you know, you're making 5000 the phone starts lighting up with people wanting to invest and buy and all this stuff. And it's pretty simple. You give them EBITDA, they give you a multiple, you negotiate, and, and then that's how you sell a, a, an entity. Law firms, not nearly as simple. I think that at the end of the day, what we're going to see is it probably is it's just not nearly as sexy or as exciting as, you know, as a non-legal because of all the different nonsense we deal with. Well, I think there's that. And I think, you know, one of the things that's unique about law that um, I don't think impacts you or I, 
but it does impact a lot of people is that our a lot of lawyers their self-identity is wrapped up in their law firm because they think of themselves as a lawyer and that's who they are and it's their firm that they've created and crafted and i think part of the problem with it is that is is, is that tricky valuation because i'll i'll be honest with you i had uh, a number of years ago there was a lawyer who had all the chops but didn't have the business skills uh and i said hey you know why don't you come in i'll i'll pay you a a great salary, uh, and you could you could run my my litigation, and they were like, "Well, I'll be giving up my firm. Uh, I want my name on the door. I want equity." And I said, "But tell tell me what kind of money you generated." Well, I have no idea because I get paid in cash every week, and uh, whatever I get paid, I, I you know I put a little aside for taxes, and that's it. Well, but, but and I, and I was like. That's not well, the right yeah, absolutely. anyway. So, right, absolutely. Yeah, but, 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 but point point is well taken. And look, and that's the difference. Like it's when when the firms are sold properly, it's not like this is a windfall of twenty years revenue. It sounds like, and I, I think that my general gist. I'm curious to see what Thomas say. You get like one year's revenue as a payout if you're lucky. Maybe three years of of of, of profits. You know something. It's not. This isn't the same. You know, uh, seven to ten times multiple of yeah. EBITDA that you but, see uh, with non-legal. And part of it is there's all these things that are added to the mix that make us less desirous. About right, the, you and, know, right, and you have to deal with clients, etc. And I think, I think, you know, all of us are are thinking. Well, you know, this law firm is so valuable over the last you know thirty years. I've made great money, but. Yeah, you have, and you've spent great money. You know, they, you, they, you know, there's a there's a lot of dollars that run through our practices, but we don't put a hundred percent of them into our pocket. Um, you know, we put a much much lower, you know, twenty twenty five percent of that into our pocket, uh, and that also includes the stuff that we do. I mean, we're not, you know, I know I'm not out. I know you're not out uh, entirely, and it's it's one of the things that has to be replaced. So, uh, why don't we do this? Why don't we take a quick break? We'll hear from our sponsors, and then when we come back, let's talk to Tom. Let's talk a little bit about this. Uh, I got a feeling that this is one that could go long uh, because uh, this is something that we, 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 you and I, have a lot of interest in, but I think a lot of our viewers do. So, folks, we'll be right back with more Maximum Growth Live. The lawyers who will succeed in the next decade are the ones who are focusing on building their brands where people meet. And there is no place better to build your brand than on social media. With the FirmFlex DIY social media plan, hundreds of lawyers like you are using social media to build their brand and become the one lawyer in their community that people know, like, and trust. By spending even just five minutes a day on social media marketing, you can engage with hundreds or thousands of people in your local community who will need your services. By cultivating a network of followers, you build a book of business that you can market to the next decade and beyond. If you are looking for a solution to help you jumpstart your social media marketing, look no further than the DIY plan at GetFirmFlex.com. The DIY was created by a small firm lawyer for people just like you, helping you connect with local people online and build your brand and engage people in the topics they want to talk about, all for under $100 a month. To find out more, visit GetFirmFlex.com. In this world today, if you want to grow your business, you want to grow your firm, you want to take on more cases and make a bigger impact, you have to have a digital blueprint. Statistically, throughout the time that we've been working with Blue Shark Digital, our law firm, the Atlanta Divorce Law Group, grew over 1,400%. Seth and his team have years of experience in this area. Blue Shark is truly a part of the firm. 
So I don't consider Blue Shark any different than the employees in my office. We're thrilled to have Tom Lenfesti, the founder of the Law Practice Exchange. Welcome, Tom. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You know, you, you focus on an area that that I've I've sort of was wondering if there was somebody like you out there. We had never really, you know, found found a person who was out there helping law, lawyers package their law firms up, get them sold, figure out, uh, you know, some sort of marketplace. Because uh, you know, for most lawyers out there, they talk about selling their firm, and Lord knows, in the circles we travel, Jay and I, more people talk about selling their law firm than anything else. But the number of success stories seems very you know, nominal compared to the number of people that plan on selling their law firm. Yeah, I mean, that's part of the reason, you know, back um, a decade ago, I started the Law Practice Exchange. Um, you know, as an attorney, you know, CPA, I was working with a lot of other professional businesses, a lot of dentists, a lot of other CPAs, you know, <clears throat> medical doctors, insurance, everything else. And honestly, you know, Seth and Jay, I think I got jealous on the fact that it seemed like other professions had figured out how to, you know, sell and retire, you know, build value, monetize that value and exit and transition it over. So that's really what kicked off the, you know, the need, the idea and, you know, building it out into a service um, so that lawyers can do that. And that's what we've been focused on for, you know, these years is kind of building out how it can work successfully between a lawyer, you know, law firm seller and a lawyer, law firm buyer. You know, I, I noticed this as, um, you know, Blue Shark, somebody said, hey, there's a lot of demand for marketing with dentists. And what I noticed was that most non-cosmetic dentists essentially, you know, they go to they go to dental school, they may have dental loans and they go out and they see a practice. They may work in it for a year or two and then they they get a note and they buy the practice. Now they have the advantage of they can there can be non-competes. You can sell your clients, you know, like there's a whole bunch of things that lawyers have restricting them. But it's a very clean way that somebody who's three years out of dental school can, with modest debt service, have a practice of their own. Something in the law firm world, Jay and I, I mean, half the reason our show exists is because people are trying to build this for the ground up and there's not another option generally for jumpstarting a firm. Um, you know, so talk to me about, you know, obviously that that's the panacea is that you'd be able to package stuff up. How much do the legal ethics rules surrounding uh, non-competes and other issues stymie the ability to, to, to sell a firm? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, the nicest part, if you look to ABA Rule 1.17, which most states have adopted, not all, um, but it you know expressly says you can sell a law firm, right? Um, you can sell a law firm and it's one of the places that if it doesn't require, essentially allows for um, the selling attorney to sign a non-compete, right? So most states, uh, you know, on a national level, everybody says attorneys, you know, you can't sign non-competes, um, but it actually, in order to prevent confusion, basically, you know, the states don't want you to sell your firm to, uh, you know, Joe, and then turn it and open up shop right down the street. And so clients are confused, right? So they actually say, look, if you sell your firm, that is an area where we do not want you competing, right? Ethically, you know, under that. So 
Um, Non-compete, I would say sale of a law firm or a law practice is the one area that you can have that for lawyers. Um, but the ethics otherwise are still, you know, not directly on point with how we really do the models. Most of our sales are transition-based sales. Um, 1.17 kind of envisions a throw the keys to a buyer and walk out the door type of thing, um, which we just see as too much of loss of value, right? Those are death, disability, you know, sudden departure type events. And so, you know, the ethics are a restraint in some aspects, but it is one area where, you know, ABA, most states have come out and said, look, you can sell your law firm. There is a model to do it. And it is an area where we can make sure that the clients are transferred without confusion and without competition from the seller. You know, in much of the non-legal world, uh, sale of businesses go with a um, sort of a multiple of EBITDA. How, what is mm -hmm. the sort of, how are you seeing uh, law firms sold? Like what's the, what type of multiple of what are you, are you basically pricing law firms at? Yeah. Um, so our multiples, we approach law firm valuation from four different methods, typically. Um, one of those, of course, is a revenues uh, approach, looking at historical revenues. And then we talk about everything of, you know, transferable value. So if you look at revenues, really, we're going to do an analysis to say, here's what the firm has done, right? But what is transferable to the next buyer? Because, you know, what we find in certain situations, I mean, we may have a lawyer that does, you know, expert witness work, you know, highly lucrative revenue producing, but the buyer can't do that work because that's going to be tied to that individual seller, right? Or there's going to be historical clients that won't transition or, you know, they're aging out as well as the seller, you know, uh, revenue loss could be a component, but typically on revenues, we're looking anywhere from a low, which is a low of 0.5 up to a high of usually 1.1 on the revenue scale. Right. And, you know, the larger the firm, the more structured uh, of a business model, you can really break those limits or push the higher ends of those. But that's typically from a revenue side, which means if you're doing a million dollars in revenue for the firm and your multiple is a one, right, your firm value potentially could be that million dollars. Right. That's the, the vision of what hopefully the buyer will do on an annual basis going forward. On the earning side, or what we would call the net income approach, that really means what you have benefited from on ownership of the firm over the last couple of years, is that again, transferable to a new buyer, right? And so on those aspects, if we're looking at an adjusted, you know, owner's cash flow or net income, we're usually somewhere between a two to a three and a half multiple, right? And, you know, again, you're talking about, okay, million dollar firm, maybe you make, you know, a half a million dollars. If you're looking at that, you know, two multiple, your firm would be worth, you know, a million dollars, right? You know, two and times the not total. Surprising. These, things sh these things should be coming together. There shouldn't be a huge difference <laughs> depending on how Correct. you're looking at it. Before I flip this to Jay, I mean, Jay, Jay is Mr. Systems. Do you find that law firms, hope I'm not taking your question, Jay, but that law oh, firms totally that are. created, that, 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 that are taking these systems and putting them in place, does that make this more sellable, more likely that somebody could step in to take it over versus the guy who's been sitting there and doing stuff off the, uh, the back of an envelope for 30 years? Absolutely. And, you know, Jay, to give you credit for your question, you know, as well, but it's, you know, the aspect of focus on systems, you know, most traditional uh, 
especially small law firms, right? If you look at, you know, a certain generation, the boomer generation that may be retiring or looking at retirement strategies, not all of them were built on a business model. They are an extension of, you know, the attorney, right? And so, so much to your point, you know, uh, you know, Jay and Seth is, you know, it's not systems. It really wasn't a business model, but those that have been built that way are so much easier to transfer from one to the other, right? Because the systems can be transferred. The people that are trained on those systems, right, can be transferred. It's much harder for us to show a buyer prospect in the marketplace. Um, this firm's great. And let me tell you why, because the attorney that's selling it has all this information in their head, right? They do all these awesome things on a daily basis that produce these great clients and revenues, right? Or we can show them, hey, here's what they do on a marketing system and platform, which generates these number of leads, right? Here's the data. Hey, they have checklist or software process for everything here. Their you know, team is trained on that, right? They outsource this, but they in-house this. And so systems definitely help on a transfer or a sale. It's probably gonna get you a better value. Um, overall, it's gonna get you better payment terms, right? So we can definitely sell you know, the firm that is you know, circled around that attorney, it's just they're they're going to be more focused on a you know performance based payout. The seller is going to take on more risk than maybe the seller who has built a business that really runs without them in it. Right? I mean, we've got some great firms that you know the owners make great money and they haven't stepped foot in their corporate offices for ten years. Right? And they built a machine, right? That just, you know, happens to offer great legal services. And they've got trained, you know, experienced people and systems that can be seen by a, another law firm or a buyer of how they run those systems. Well, before I throw this to Jay, are those firms where the principal is not essential? They haven't stepped inside the walls in years. Is that easier to sell in the sense that you're not, you clearly aren't relying upon a person that there's a team that you're then would be theoretically acquiring that would be able to continue doing whatever they're doing. Absolutely. It's easier to sell that firm, right? I mean, as a generic statement, than a firm that everything is centered around the attorney or even involved in that. You know, I tell people one of the things that got me started, you know, as I was helping clients and everything else was reading, you know, John Warlow's Built to Sell book, right? I mean, we all know it, you know, or read it, but it's the focus is basically if the business is about you, right? It's hard to sell it. You can go get a job somewhere. Somebody will hire you. Um, but if the business is fully, you know, you're in every piece of it. So where you've removed yourself from that and you've been able to, you know, still enjoy the benefits of ownership, um, then you're really saying, you know, hey, somebody else, I don't need to, you to come in and I don't need to spend the next couple of years introducing you to referral sources, you know, training you on these systems like that's built. Right. So and we see that mostly with, uh, you know, firms and attorneys that are retiring. We see those with larger firms. Right. A lot in the personal injury, you know, bankruptcy, workers comp space, otherwise. Um, but they've they've invested over the last 20 years and you know built some really nice business models that, you know, they still are a strategic maybe overseer of it, but they are definitely not daily operations. So I have a yeah. question for you. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking maybe it's time to sort of take myself out of the, uh, out of the name of the firm 
because I want to separate myself and and not, and be able to have a marketable entity or asset that I can sell down the line. Let's can we talk a little bit about you know when a person is starting to set up their law firm, there is this natural bias towards you know the ego of naming it after myself, Ruane Attorneys, Price Benowitz, because you are the firm at that point. Um, but then I've seen other people, and I've done it myself with some of my offshoots, who've decided to go straight branding because they know that the brand is something that you can sell and it's a non-person-based law firm. You know, it's Advocates Law Firm or something along and those at the And at the moment, that can actually help with Google search given the local spam work. So it's ironic that right now that there's a double whammy that it's so I'm looking forward to this answer. Yeah. So what, where should we be if we are thinking, you know, even five, 10, 15 years down the line, we want to be able to sell, uh, you know, sh should we be branding it uh, or, or should we be rebranding as a generic name? Will that make it more marketable? I think the short answer is uh, typically yes, right? <clears throat> you know, if you have a not generic name, but if you are really, you know, have picked a name that you build, you know, a brand around, right? And that's why, you know, why do you buy a franchise versus starting your own, right? You're buying the, you know, you're buying that brand, you're buying a marketing, you know, somebody's driving down the highway and they see, you know, that fast food chain, you know it. Right. You can recognize that everything else versus, you know, mom and pops, you know, diner or anything else. But, you know, I do think as much as, you know, there's an advantage to it um, and there's an ease of transition. Like when we talk about value of a law firm, we divide it up into personal value that the attorney owner may have the firm value, right? And then we add to that the transition plan that is going to be needed by the, the seller to really take you know, that personal value and transfer it over and, and take those three components. And hopefully that equates to what your transferable value to a buyer would be, right? You take what the firm, you know, the website, the, the phone numbers, the systems, the trained team, and you take your personal worth, which is, you know, who you know, the brand, everything else that's tied to you. If you move more of that to the firm, it becomes easier to transfer less transition plan needed, just like building systems. And in, in our opinion would be, you know, better because you're moving that from your head over to the firm systems or anything else. And so, um, you know, I, I probably a little biased, but I would say if you can pick something that really works as a uh, generic, not tied to your name brand for your firm, um, then it's going to help you, you know, later if you decide to exit, transition, anything else. You know, the old way of, you know, having firm names, which were, you know, eight partners long, right? And now all firms have gone, you know, the big ones have all gone to shorten those to just two, right? And they used to be so-and-so and so-and-so, -so, right? Um, so they've tried to even take and say, we need a brand right? Like we need a brand that isn't tied to names. Plus every time the partner would, you know, retire or die or change or leave, they'd have to change the firm name. So um, I definitely think there's an advantage. Now that said is there are some tremendous brands that have been built around personal names and those personal names are nowhere involved in the daily legal delivery of services. So I wouldn't, you know, uh, again, persuade anybody to change that, especially if they have already built, you know, a brand or value around that. They just, you know, wouldn't want to flip a switch and go the other way. Um, but if you're starting, I would say definitely look at something that's not just tied to you. 
And it can flip both ways, right, Jay? Because in one sense, you could say, yeah, it's easier to sell it this way. But if it's generic, it may be harder to brand it versus, you know, I was just talking to a marketing client who had like a, a, a totally generic name. I'm like, I can't imagine anybody ever stroking a check to that name. Meaning it was versus, you know, if you who are you getting? I know Ru- Ruane. Ruane's going to take care of my matter um, and that there's that balance. But I, I have a little bit of a rant, which is I went through this process, didn't know that you even existed. And over the number of years said, hey, we're going to grow through acquisition. Both used a consultant, did it myself. And the thing that I found, it almost felt like the Groucho Groucho, Marx, Woody Allen concept of who, why would you want to be a member of a club or to have you as a member, was that the people that I really wanted to acquire, if they weren't ready, the numbers were so crazy that you were like, that's just not right. And the ones that were ready had run things into the ground so far that, you know, there wasn't a, as much left. They had sort of, you know, I'll sell eventually. And by the time they were ready to sell, there were the systems were shot, the people were, were dead weight. And at best, you might get some cases, but you'd have all these transaction costs of, of thinning that out. What, what are your thoughts on where do you find that sweet spot? Because it's, it's like, I got to tell you, it wasn't intuitive going to market. There were plenty of people, I'll leave you with this, the story of a guy who, you know, had bought out his partner at a $500,000 valuation five years before, run the firm down. And when he finally said, yeah, I'd be willing to sell it to you. I need a couple million in cash and, you know, a, a tail going into the future. And I'm like, it just stopped the insanity. So again, there's a reason that you exist and that there's, you know, it would save somebody the time of all of these reverse tire kickers where they were just like waiting to be able to give you a, a dream number that they would love to get. How do you, where do you find that sweet spot? Yeah. I mean, we talk about one of our biggest needs is, you know, educating our sellers, um, but, you know, having reasonable sellers, right? Just like any other business, but especially, you know, what I learned about migrating from law into, you know, brokerage through the law practice exchanges, we have, I mean, you know, owners of law firms contact us every day interested in selling. Then it becomes ours to basically filter through and say, okay, but can we really meet their expectations, right? Do they understand what the market, you know, platform provides and can we do that? Because, you know, we work on a success fee. So if we can't do that, right, we don't want to work with the, you know, one that you had that just bought out their partner for 500 now wants, you know, a couple million dollars, right? Our goal is to make, you know, bring on sellers that we can find buyers for, have reasonable sellers, have reasonable buyers. The biggest thing that you know we've seen, Seth, is a, a challenge for especially small law firms is, you know, lawyers that own and run the practices that are looking at exit, a lot of times they look at their total comp that they are receiving and they forget that so much of that that they are doing is tied to legal work, basically salary for the work that they're doing. Right. The person they have to replace, somebody's going to have to replace that work. Absolutely. Right. And so, you know, that's just part of where I'd say, especially recently, has been just a, a true education point for us of saying, look, yes, you may have that million dollar revenue firm and you may make $500,000, but you're a 30 plus year attorney, an expert in your field. What would you pay somebody to do all the legal work that you do? Right. And then immediately, of course, it's, you know, 200, 300,000. Well, if that's the true replacement cost, then your owner benefits from the firm is only 200,000. 
right? And so now we're talking about a multiple of, you know, 200,000 times two or three, right? Because that's what you, if, if you and your firm are looking at acquisition, you can play with those discretionary cash flow numbers, right? After you've paid to have it replaced and you can pay out of that. So you can make a payment of purchase price out of that. You can invest in the firm and transition costs. But that is that is a challenge, right? Unreasonable sellers, um, you know, to make the deals work. And again, I think it's because most attorneys look at the total that they bring out of the firm. They don't really separate it out. And my best analogy is, you know, if a law firm is a factory and you are one of those awesome machines in the factory, if you're going to retire and we're going to move you out, that factory is going to lose production unless it replaces with another machine. Right. And it may take two machines. Right. It may take two associate attorneys, you know, with Seth firm versus one expert that you've done everything right and everything else. But those are costs that a buyer's got to consume. Right. So we got to move those off the table. That is a that is a cost of doing business. It's not a profit. Right. It's not a profit piece. So once we get that, we're pretty successful on making deals work and work successfully. I about the transaction costs, just bringing the cases in. So let's say Jay wanted to acquire a firm and something that, that I've seen is that the value of the current cases, you know, while there's a definitely a tail, if it's a firm that's coming in, the amount of time Jay is going to need to take to take each file, which may or may not be in a case management system, may or may not be in his case management system, clearly not in Jay's, um, is, you know, that they, how do you bake that in because that's, you know, I see people that like put the current value of the case almost at zero because of the amount of effort that it's going to take to bring them into your current system. Yeah, I think, um, you know, one of the approaches that I uh, didn't mention that we take is usually an asset approach, right? Like if you're looking at current case inventory, <clears throat> whether it's <clears throat> excuse me, whether it's, you know, criminal defense, whether it's uh, personal injury, workers comp, you know, those that have potential buildup, you know, there's good to that, bringing in the cases, but there is cost to that, right? There's cost to complete those cases, but there's also like bringing them over on your system. Usually we like to figure in and work with our buyers on what is the transition cost, the transaction cost to onboard this firm and carry it over, right? And if you have a firm that's all paper files, Right. And it's going to take you and your team, you know, fifty thousand, one hundred thousand dollars. Then we just we need to discuss that and make that part of the deal, that that would be a reduction of price, because that's what it takes to move a you know, historical, you know, very heavy personal value firm to a you know, process driven, you know, more modern firm. So, yeah, definitely. We see that we see a lot of hard files to, you know, we see sellers that say, look, I've got offsite storage. I need a buyer to pay for that because I've got 20 years of files. And I said, you know, our basic education point is buyers don't want to pay for file storage, right? Um, they'll pay for the contacts, but, you know, you may be able to work with a buyer on a cost to have things scanned, entered into a CRM system, but they're not going to take over your, you know, three-year lease on a, on a file storage so that they can just have, you know, mountains of paper as well. So I, I have a question for you, um, and it's starting to happen uh, out west, you know, Arizona, Utah, and outside money. Uh, you know, law is probably one of the last industries where there is no outside money in the United States really up until the last couple of months. 
but I, you know, as as things stand, it seems to go west to east. And, and at, where do you see this outside money as playing a role in the acquisition of law firms? Where do you see the future? Yeah, I mean, again, um, I could tell you that when I started the Law Practice Exchange in 2013, there was a belief that it would happen. I don't think that I thought it would happen even this quick, right? Really? Um, but it, it, yeah, not in 2013 to, you know, kind of, you know, less than a decade later, see, you know, equity, you know, and kind of state laws change. And it's not just Utah and Arizona, but it's the, you know, 15 other states that are, you know, considering this move, right? And either publicly or super secret committee, right? Um, you know, that there is, you know, those discussions. And once the dominoes fall, unless there's a catastrophic pushback in Utah or Arizona, you know, states will change. And we'll go to what is, you know, a lot of foreign models, everything else um, as well, that you could have private money, non-professional money into law firms. And, you know, I tell people a lot of things, just, you know, part of the reason of creating the law practice exchange, I don't know that I have novel ideas, but I like to be a student of other industries or professions. And if you look at how, you know, outside non-licensed, non-professional money has changed, you know, dentistry, you know, medical, right? You know, even CPA firms can be, you know, owned by non-licensees, those different things. It's been a balance, right? Certain firms are still going to be owned 100% by the professional and others are going to change over, right? Um, I think overall, it can be a good thing for the profession, right? Some people may not want to hear that, but I do think that there can be money that goes to providing better services to you know, clients across the board, whether those are underserved markets or their current served markets. Um, you can help create a better platform where lawyers that have to self-fund or borrow, just don't have the capital to implement a lot of the ideas and things that they would like to do to provide that better service, right? But you get an, you know, an equity investor that can cough up 5 million bucks um, and that's not something the lawyer has to do. You can do a lot with that in a law firm, right? Um, to provide great service, you know, not just make money for yourself, but you know, help others. The other thing I see too is I'm sure if you guys, again, focused on systems, focused on people within those systems, you know, non-attorneys are becoming so important in certain firms um, that having them have, you know, profit incentive um, or equity incentive, you know, in those opportunities, I think is, is needed. Because I do think the, the non-attorney managers, the non-attorney marketing roles are becoming so such a key part that this you know, non-sharing of legal revenue you know, changeover will help attract the best you know, to law firms, right? Not just you know, those that will work for a base salary plus a discretionary bonus, right? So I see it changing. I could tell you that you know, Europe, the buying and selling of law firms is pretty much a marketplace that has been around for years and is, is very active, right? Um, most foreign jurisdictions are more active than the US. So I think from the buying selling side, it will change. Right now, if you wanna buy a firm, you have to self finance that. You have to ask the you know, seller to you know, seller finance or you know, do terms with them, or you have to go get a bank loan, right? At a certain well, point- Is that happening? Are you, seeing, are you seeing bank loans for law firms? Yeah, we've got we've got great lenders, right? Um, similar to lenders again that'll lend for other goodwill structured companies like dentists, doctors, CPAs. You know, we 
usually don't have any issue finding financing for, you know, deals that again, good firms, the right terms, you know, reasonability otherwise. But again, that's the buyer or the firm taking on that risk, right? Anytime you could take somebody in and it'd be an equity partner, and they're going to essentially put up that capital, you know, to improve your systems, but then go out and acquire other firms to bring onto your systems, right? So Jay, you know, you have an equity partner and then you're able to go out and acquire. Yes, you got a lot of paper files, you got costs to do that, but you don't have to self-finance that and bootstrap everything. You know, you've got, you know, deeper pockets to help you do that and hire the right team to do that. And overall, you know, if you're proud of what service model and how your firm does things, then hopefully we're changing the profession for the better right? We're using that outside capital. We're still the ones directing as lawyers how those services are delivered, but it's not our pockets necessarily that we have to always pull into to fund those. It's, you know, outside and kind of sharing that, you know, opportunity. So I got, you know, I got for, one. Let me ask this question. There's really sort of two ways to sort of tr sell your law firm, right? One is to go and find somebody who's not connected to your firm, and the other is to sell to your employees and sort of let them come in. Is in your experience, is one more successful than the other? Uh, is is one easier than the other? Is one more difficult because the owner who wants to sell to his employees never really let the employee know how much money was out there, and now the employees are like, "Well, shit, why do I want to buy your thing? I've been doing all the work for 20, 30 years." <clears throat> like, you know, you get into some interpersonal dynamics when you sell internally. I'm just curious, where do you find the problems on both sides, the internal sale and the external sale? Yeah, absolutely. So when we started, you know, we would separate. If somebody came to us and said, "I want to sell to my associates or sell to an associate," you know, we would take them down a, a one path, right? Um, the problem that we ran into is uh, that one path would kind of grind on, right? We'd run into, you know, baggage history, right? They would tell us, oh, I love, you know, this attorney's worked with me forever. They don't like to work that hard, right? They, they don't stay past five o'clock on a Friday, right? You know, these different things, all of that history and baggage from employer, employee would come up during the deal. And then a lot of times, and again, through no fault of the next generation, they don't all want to be a buyer they don't wanna be an owner, right? They don't wanna have the sole risk or they don't wanna pay for it. They feel they've earned it, right? To a certain degree, or at least earned a discount. So, you know, that's where we, and I always started as, I wanted to build the marketplace for buying and selling, right? Like that's really the law practice exchange's goal is to be the marketplace where everybody can come to get the resource, but essentially do that because you know, if we can bring outsiders to even that small law firm, one owner, one associate, the associate may be promoted into a junior partner situation, maybe the geographical manager, but this other firm is going to take over the financial risk, the operations, everything else from that side. And timeline is so important to attorneys when they go to sell. Most of them are looking at retirement or exit for the next thing in their life. And when you spend months uh, discussing and negotiating with your associate, non-equity partners, whatever the case is, and that doesn't lead anywhere, then you've eaten up a lot of your timeline, right? And so what 
our approach is, you know, with clients now is if you're interested in selling, we go through the same process. We value your firm. We prepare it for presentation to any buyers, you know, marketing items, everything else, gather and bundle all that together, plus the sales structure on payment terms, whatever else. If you want to present or you want us to present to internal candidates, fine. Those are, you know, one or some of our buyers, but we also are going to market because that allows us to make sure we're making the most of our timeline. And if things slow down or stall one, one path, we have the other path already moving, right? And what we found is it is a challenge to sell to internal candidates, right? A lot of them don't want it, or there's just, you know, financial mix. Uh, I don't wanna share my profit and loss statements because they don't know what I've been making. So all of that is kind of just holds you back from really being fully vested. When we bring a law firm or a attorney from the marketplace, you know, I tell everybody, it's like you meet them and it's a first date. Everybody's on best behavior, right? You know, everybody's nice, everything else. You don't have those years of, you know, kind of baggage or anything else to do that. So it's more of an initial culture and an easier sometimes to make a match. Right. And to that point, do you, is when you're selling internally, do you have an issue where, and Jay, I think sort of alluded to this, where there's the person buying thinks there should be some goodwill that they were buying in as in like the old idea, like you're working towards partnership, that there should be a discount provided because they've put their sweat equity in and there would be a handoff. Uh, it, very often there wasn't a person like yourself involved. So now there's an additional expense potentially, but um, you know, what about that? Is there usually a discount? So at your hearing, you're preparing it either way, which I love because you could say to somebody, look, the market values it at this. Do you usually see in the end some sort of a discount for people who have been there for a period of time? Most owners of firms, most sellers want to provide that discount, right? I mean, they'll go and say, look, if, if this happens, I'm happy to discount it you know, to this or provide more favorable terms or something of that. And yes, to, to your point, Seth, most buyers expect it, right? If they've been there for years and helped build the value, they're really a key part. They're not just you know, a, a part of the pyramid, so to speak, but they are you know, more level. They have their own clients. They have their own practice mix then absolutely, they're going to come and say, well, great, that's the value of the firm that you own. But if I left tomorrow, right, um, you what's know, the it, value would be right. So if I leave, then what are you selling? Gotcha. Right. right. It's more, then, now, then it's really more of a, a succession planning rather than a sale. It's still a sale, but it's it's a different calculus than here is my widget that I'm selling to a third party and I'm going to get terms for Correct. Right. Now, again, if they've been an associate for a few years, they're just, you know, great opportunities, but they really don't have their own book. You know, if they left, then a lot of times there is no discount. Right. You know, you you could be replaced without loss. And so, you know, there would be no discount applied. But usually it's just a gratuitous, you know, employer employee. Hey, I'm happy to discount the purchase price by five, 10 percent because they've been with me for this long. Right. Or because if they left, they would take these originations and you know clients with them and everything else, right? So we definitely go through that, which again is a reason why if we can find a good strategic marketplace buyer, sometimes you'll get better you know price, but also better payment terms, right? They can use you know seller you know outside bank financing, so you get more down payment at closing, you know those different things. 
So what are the things, I mean, this is, I know we're, we're starting to go long, but I want to, you know, we talked on some of these terms, but Jay is sitting here. He say, Hey, in the next 10 years, I want to sell. What's the checklist that you want to come up with in order to prepare yourself so that you would be in the best shape when you're ready? Yeah, absolutely. Well, <clears throat> I don't think Jay needs to hear this, but my first recommendation would be to start delegating everything you can to, you know, people within your firm, your team, um, or to systems, if you don't have maybe a team, maybe you're a solo otherwise, um, or, you know, to the people and systems within. So, you know, because your goal is to lessen the need for your knowledge, your expertise, your relationships, the personal value that you have, Jay, right? You don't want that to be such a deciding factor for a buyer, right? The other part is, you know, again, prove yourself on the financials and the data that supports them, right? So strong revenues, strong earnings, built on systems, everything else, and the data to track to say, look, you know, these are, you know, the leads that we get in from these different marketing sources, these different funnels, um, you know, this is our conversion rate, you know, this is our intake, this is how we do things. That's all going to help prepare, right? You know, for that when eventual- you say earnings, do you mean profitability? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then when I saw like, so, when yeah. I looked on your site, there was a lot about, you know, what the revenue was at. And sometimes it mentioned how much somebody was taking home, which can be dicey, especially for a smaller firm where the, the firm is running a ton of stuff through the firm. But is where where is profitability on the list compared to gross revenue? Yeah, absolutely. So we use both when we look at, you know, value for a firm. Uh, profitability, we really use, um, you know, Seth, as a, uh, I'll call it a stress test, right? We'll do our, you know, return on investment, you know, cash flow projection. So if you value a firm at a million dollars, but the earnings on the firm is, you know, 200,000 just because it runs on, you know, heavy costs or otherwise, then that deal probably doesn't work, right? For a million dollars, the price is too high, you know, for that firm because a buyer, maybe like yourself, gotcha. won't see the advantage in it. So, you know, we use earnings from a multiple factor for valuation pricing, but we also use it to test, you know, our cash flow projections, you know, going forward, you know, post deal, right? Post sale type of terms from that aspect. So, you know, again, earnings are the benefits of ownership, basically the profits that you receive, not necessarily what you pay yourself for the legal work you do. Gotcha. And then one of the things you mentioned, which brought me back to sort of my my journey through this area with sort of non-rational buyers, which I love, which is if a bank would lend on it, you got to think that the terms are sort of standardized. And my dad, who was not, he was a lawyer, but did deals for non-law firms, buying and selling small family businesses over the years. I always came away with just sitting down at the dinner table that if you didn't get your money up front, there was a good chance you weren't getting the rest of it. Um, and so as like a truism, but it seems like that very often people are talking past each other, just sort of like a lawyer that charges, gets a down payment and knows they're not getting the rest of it from sort of a client on the edge that when a deal is structured right and, the, and it's a win-win, that makes sense. If somebody is, if it's a gouge and you're waiting for future payments, it will eventually end in litigation of some sort. Like, is that, I assume that's part of your role is to bring some sort of a marketplace to this where it's not just some guy saying what he, throwing this multi-million dollar dream out, but saying this is what it can support. Because if it supports it, in theory, and the, and the firm buying as a rational player, they should be able to, you know, 
monetize that in such a way that that payments will be made versus if something is so lopsided, you get in, you you dust off these paper um, you know files and all of a sudden you're upside down, much less likely you're going to get paid anything beyond the initial uh, upfront payments. Yeah, absolutely. Our, our goal in building the marketplace is to do deals that work for, you know, the seller, but also going forward for the buyers. I mean, we want our buyers to be not just one-time buyers, but multiple, right? You know, if you're going to buy a firm, we want you to come back and, you know, through our model, through our help, you know, do another one. And so, again, that goes back to seller education, making sure that we can do that. On payment terms, we always talk about, you know, a mutual sharing of risk. The market definitely operates with most firms based on performance structure or what a lot of people call earnout, right? You know, it's, hey, you'll get a percentage of revenues over time. CPA firms operate very similar, right? Uh, you know, earnout structure, everything else, because it goes back to, you know, do those relationships, will those clients stay, right? Especially if you've got more personal value tied to you and you're going to help, you know, introduce at Rotary Club, at the Chamber of Commerce, right? <clears throat> Go through that different thing. So earnouts there, what we try to get most deals to is a sharing of risk model. If a buyer's willing to go and use cash they have or use, you know, outside financing for a down payment, you know, even if it's a 50-50 deal, if you go and you value a firm at a million dollars and you're willing as a buyer to go out and, you know, contribute cash and borrow a half million, hopefully, right, you've thought through it that you're not going to lose a half million dollars of value, right? You know, from that aspect, the other half mil may be, you know, variable seller financing or an earnout component where the seller now is very invested in making sure that that post-sale transition plan, you know, is successful, right? Takes you to Rotary, takes you to the Chamber of Commerce, has, you know, lunch when we were having lunch as, you know, normal human beings and everything else, but those different things. And we're okay with that, right? Um, as part of it, and we talk a lot in due diligence on our deals about creating that transition plan so that a seller and a buyer are comfortable prior to closing on how that's going to work you know because we want our sellers to be very comfortable that look i'm not just selling this for you know 500,000 when it's really worth a million and i'll never see that they want to feel very good that hey look i know this firm has built good operations has good people is going to be great stewards for my clients my referral sources there's a great plan to do that and it is going to be successful and then as i tell everybody Again, we're success fee motivated is the way we get our fees and we typically earn with our clients. So we're very motivated on this side as well to make sure you're choosing the right buyer that it is going to be successful, right? So anyway, but yes, we can work with terms and structure, but we want to make the deals work for everybody. I have, okay. I have, a, a, I have a, a quick question. It may not be that quick when, when I ask it. Uh, have you seen practice groups splinter off and so just a practice group of a firm or is it basically an all or nothing situation um so we've definitely seen practice groups different um different uh states vary on can you sell just one practice area versus you know the whole firm itself like i think uh california revised their, you know, uh, their version of 1.17 to basically say it's an all or nothing, right? You can't just sell it. Now that said is, you know, practice groups are bought and sold all the time. Um, to the outside world, you see it as, you know, this 
this attorney has left to go join this firm, right? And they're joining as of counsel, whatever else, you know, behind the scenes, whether we're part of that or not, there's been some kind of financial transaction, which says, come join us, we'll pay you, right? This for, you know, legal work, but we'll also pay you over time for the clients and the goodwill value that you bring. Um, but to that, if you're a firm that's doing, you know, multiple and you just want to get rid of an area, um, you can do it. It's a little bit more challenging depending on state ethical rules. And typically you would kind of dance into a <clears throat> co-counsel of counsel and then, you know, full transfer. So we can work the financials to make it work, but it just takes maybe a kind of a incremental steps to get it over there. You know, it's interesting to me. We talk about building systems. We talk about doing, you know, every lawyer that I talk to, you know, just wants it to work. You know, they want to have, sort of have this magic wand where they can hire staff, they can do things, but they don't necessarily want to do the work to build systems. And it sounds like a lot of lawyers want to sell their firm, but they don't necessarily want to do the work that it takes you to be able to just sell the firm type of thing. So I think that one of the takeaways I got from this was you got to put in the work early on in the process to make it easier on the back end. It's fair to say? Absolutely. I mean, even when we start our process, you know, our, our attorneys who say, I want to sell, I'm ready, let's go. What do you need? And we say, okay, we need, you know, three, five years of tax returns. We need P&Ls. We need, you know, uh, employee, con geez, do you really need all this stuff? Right? I mean, you know, it's the, you know, well, this is going to take some time, you know, those different things. Yes. Right. Um, you know, we'll make that process more efficient. But to your point, Jay, yeah, put in the time and efforts, right? If you are looking to sell your firm in five, 10 years, then start putting in the steps and efforts now through, you know, help through your guys' community and otherwise, you know, to implement that because your firm will be hopefully a higher value, easier to sell, find a more attractive, good fit buyer um, and kind of move through those things. But it does take the effort and the time commitment to do so. What, 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 what are we talking about time-wise from the decision of, yes, I want to sell my law firm. You know, is it normally 18 months, 24 months, uh, nine months? Like what, what's a jet? I mean, I know you can't get specific, but what should somebody be budgeting in their head for, you know, I decide today that I'm going to list something with the law practice exchange. What should I be looking for in, in this time commitment before I can say I'm out? Yeah, we tell everybody if you're looking at, you know, exiting the profession or getting to a point where you really are not practicing law, uh, get to us at least three to five years ahead of that point. Right. So if like retirement, so that, so that like I'm there, on the post. you're right. It includes that window. So I'm sitting here today saying, you know, in five years, I want to be done practicing law. Then that's the time to really start, you know, planning for sale and exit. And to walk through that, if you come to us today and sign up with us, you know, it'll take us, you know, 30, 60, 90 days, because again, we got to get financials, everything else to get you into market, to prepare pricing, structure, marketing materials, strategy to do that. And then, you know, we, we sign up for basically a 12 month kind of window um, because it takes a while, right? I mean, if you're an attorney located in this certain community of a certain practice area, you know, our biggest things are geographic location and practice area match, right? We can have somebody that says, oh, I'm looking in this geographic area, but not this practice, you know, area, right? And so we keep moving on, 
So as this market builds, you know, our biggest um, asset probably, you know, aside from our process and knowledge is our database, right? So we continue to build those buyers who are interested, everything else um, to make those match. But that could take a year, right? To find a, the right buyer, to negotiate that deal, hopefully close on that deal, could take longer, could take shorter, but now we're you know a year into this, and then we tell everybody on the seller side, plan on at least six to eighteen months of post-sale transition, right? Which means, hey, you've sold your firm, maybe you stay on as a partner by name, or you've joined and kind of you know as part of the sale, you're of counsel now with a firm. You know that first six months, twelve months, you may be working pretty hard to transition stuff over, and then after that point, yeah, you're needed for Rotary Club. Uh, you're needed for this key client or this key referral source lunch, right? So you're very much part-time, but you're still working. You're still doing that, right? Um, and openly, most of the problem that we see, you know, of the generation of sellers, you know, of the boomers otherwise is they don't really want to stop practicing law. Um, they just know they need to have a plan for ownership transition. And to them, we essentially say selling your firm does not mean you have to stop practicing law. Right. So I would imagine, Seth, if you've looked and talked to some of those potential sellers, if they said, well, I'll sell the firm at good, reasonable terms, and then I'd like to stay on and be an attorney with your firm, right, going forward under a compensation model, most of the time you'd say, great, you know, wonderful, picks up a good personal brand, has somebody to do some of that legal work. Um, but they you then have the rational, you, you, you found the rational sellers. I, I have not. That's why you're, 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 wow. you, we're going to put your information, your contact information in the comments. Uh, my final question as we, as we get out of here is what are the economics? What should somebody expect? You know, how, how do you guys work? Is there a, is there an upfront fee for putting the package together? Is it, it's, it's great to hear that you do your, your, your percentages uh, along the way. Is it a set amount or does it depend on the deal? How, how do you work? Yeah, typically we just charge a, you know, what we think fairly small amount, depending on the firm upfront to do the valuation, right? And just the initial market prep. Really, we do that because we want to go into that and say, here's the price, here's what we think we can get for you on terms, price, everything else. What do you think? And if the seller says it's way too low, then that's where we stop, right? We've been compensated what's a little valuation bit. valuation run, ballpark, uh, high to low? What's, what's the range? Yeah. <laughs> Depending on ours, you know, on a low side, three to four, right? On a high side, you know, 10, right? And we're doing these as, you know, pricing, market analysis, you know, type of things, depending on the, the ownership structure, you know, size of the firm. But, you know, typically does that, does on that, that include like an accounting, do you bring an accounting firm to run the numbers or how, how do, you, do you do you do that all in-house? We do it all in-house. So we have, you know, myself, of course, being a CPA, we have other CPAs on staff to basically build out all, all our own models. As you can imagine, there's just not a lot out there about you know market pricing of firms, right? And then Understood. the payment structure, so you know, our data. And then um, really, you know, on success fee, the typical, the standards, 10% um, of a success fee. Um, you know, it varies if the firm's larger, it'll scale down usually from there. Um, but you know, for our goal is, you know, that 10%, you know, standard brokerage, you know, for business type model. And again, our goal is we earn with you. So if you get 20% down and 80% is paid over time, but you really like the buyer, the firm, you feel there's a great fit, a great stewardship of what you've built, then we'll ride that with you. 
and we'll help throughout that process to make sure that you guys have talked about what's the transition plan, right? Is there, you know, set dates for how you're going to introduce to key clients, referral sources, make the right announcements, bring resources to them. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Tom. This is this has been uh, yeah. illuminating. Yeah, it really has. You know, this is something that we talk about a lot, but I don't think people really know the steps that are necessary. And, and getting to talk to somebody like you is really helpful to sort of frame it out in our minds. Uh, now I want to see what I can do to yeah. get out of the. Yeah, JJ's alone. already like delegated twenty different things, <laughs> and he's uh, he's put, <laughs> he'll have the uh, firm on your website within a week. Yeah, absolutely. All absolutely. Right. Good deal. Well, I All appreciate right, it, guys. And. Anything I can do in the future, let me know. All right, folks. Thanks so much. Folks, thank you so much, Tom. And folks, we'll be right back with more Maximum Growth Live. All right. That was Thanks, awesome. Thanks, Tom. I got I got Hey, it's Becca here. I'm sure you've heard Jim and Tyson mention the Guild on the podcast and in the Facebook group. The Guild is this perfect mix of a community, group coaching, and a mastermind. Guild members get so many benefits including weekly live events and discounts to all Maximum Lawyer events. Head over to MaximumLawyer.com forward slash the guild to check out all the benefits and watch a few testimonials from current members. So head to MaximumLawyer.com and click on the guild page to join us. Now, let's get back to the episode. Well, now, Seth, I mean, this, this gave me a lot to think about, uh, especially that last part about the timeline. If I want to exit in five years, uh, and be totally out, I need to start thinking now. And, and as I think, you know, when do I want to get out? That, that at least gives me a, a, a roadmap to where I think I want to be. And, and knowing someone like Tom is out there, I think is going to be helpful because I, I have now a resource I can go to start putting things in place. What were your takeaways? No, look, a lot of it's sort of, it is common sense. We, you know, I think it is what we've spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about, which is running your law firm like a business. And the more you run it like a business, the more sellable it is. Now, it's, you know, this is somebody who sold several dozen, uh, you know, firms. This is, it is still not an easy thing to do. But, but what I, but I also see having gone through the process without a Tom, but with somebody else, with a person who is trying to make these introductions, is that there are so many lawyers that sort of they they say one thing, and we're all guilty of this, but they do another. You know, how many times you said I'm going to get out of going to court more often? You know, and then it doesn't happen for whatever reason. Some parts because you like it, some because you think it's business development, some because the guy you need going there isn't strong. Whatever it is, it is easier said than done to set yourself up for it. And I think that that is the that is the key. You know, what Jay Ruain can do without Jay Ruain is what's sellable. And until you get to the point, the systems are great, everything else is great. But if you're still the, if you're indispensable, then it's not a business to job. I always talk to David Brenton about this when he's like, you know, I'm going to just take care of this issue. I'm like, stop it. You know, I, I had to stop myself doing it. Now I have the president of Blue Shark. I said, like, no, unless it can be done by excellent staff who knows what they're doing, then you've just bought yourself a job and it's not a business. And I'm always sort of, and I think that it's not different here. It's never going to be, it's always better if you do it yourself, but until you get to the point, you have the ability to put the systems in place, but until you make the hires and put talent in place, it doesn't really allow you that ability to make the exit. And what would be curious, I'd love to follow up with Tom, of the successful sales you know, one thing is obviously expectations. We heard that loud and clear today, right? If you think you're getting seven times earnings, that's not happening in a law firm. 
put that aside. But of the people that did that were sellable, how many of them had made themselves non-essential? Because without it, you know, it's one thing if you're doing the work because then they can put another practitioner in to do the work. But the people that have everything tangled through them as Grand Central Station probably less likely to have sold and the people that did do and follow the things we talked about today probably much more so you know and, and that that begs a, an interesting question too is what is the value of somebody who is somewhat of a visionary because a person who buys a practice uh you know that practice may be humming along but it may not necessarily grow uh you know i think one of the things that i bring to the table is i constantly have ideas um, I'm trying something now uh, that I, it's so, I mean, we're talking six months before I think uh, I'll be able to even share information because I want to run A-B tests and, and do a bunch of things. But, you know, it, it's, it's, I just had a crazy idea one night. Uh, and, but you're and, still, you're still in the position, you're not selling anything. So the question is, when Jay Ruane is tired, or we may get older, seems to let, let most people seem to get older and more tired. When you get to the point where it's not there, the question is, can you hand it off? And that's why when I look at like the dental practice, you know, there's a methodology, you run your piece, but you're on your feet all day, you know, at X age, I mean, over under maybe 65, at some number, maybe 62, you're going to sell it, you're going to get a couple years of revenue from it, you bank money before, that's how it's done. And that you, you sort of like, it, it's it's tried and true. Lawyers have just basically run themselves to the ground. Same reason we have the different, you know, mental health issues and alcohol issues right. and all these things. There isn't, a, there's not a schedule to get off the treadmill. The people that go into this go into it because they're so focused and determined. It's sometimes, I think, hard to jump off that um that, that, that treadmill and get yourself to the point where like, okay, what is next? When do I head to Boca? You know, it's funny. I, I, I was at a dinner last week for a lawyer turning 60 and I was the youngest lawyer in the room. Obviously, I'm, I'm only 48. Um, and and there were in the room with me 12 lawyers over 75 who still practice and have no plans on walking away from it. Uh, and, and look, and, so my, my dad, 85, still practicing right. in New York you know, of counsel. But that's why the big firms with succession, the, the mega firms, they have mandatory retirement. Right. You know, and they'll, for a mega rainmaker, they may get like a five year extension, but like, or even a two year extension, but generally it's up and out. And they know that the work's got to go somewhere. They assume more often than not it'll stay at their firm, but they don't want the people to stay there forever. Uh, that there's for a bunch of reasons, but you know the, the question for us is: Is it a and this this is a larger discussion for a future episode? Is the law firm a lifestyle, um, you know, mechanism of, of earning for you, or are you building something to unload? Most people treat it as a lifestyle. Most of the people in our audience who have their own shops, they run a lot of personal stuff through their their firm. They do they they make it into something that's part of their being and their DNA. And so what we what we talked about today is a whole different mindset. And usually what happens is, and my guess is, and he alluded to this, a lot of people come when it's too late. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's you interesting. Know, we we that, acquire yeah, sorry. Um, I, it was interesting about the whole lifestyle thing because I and I didn't get to bring it up in the interview, but I remember uh, talking to Lee Rosen a while back, who had been traveling for years while his firm was sort of just functioning without him and when he sold it uh he said you know i didn't really budget in for the fact that i wouldn't have the frequent flyer miles anymore 
that, you know, because he was living in hotels and getting upgrades and all those things. And that disappeared when he didn't have a law firm churning those American Express or Chase Sapphire miles for him. And that was something that he had never even thought about as part of his lifestyle that was necessary. Uh, and so I just thought it was something that, that was interesting that, you know, a lot of people, you know, they'll run their cell phone, cell phone through the office and, and their car payments are, are you know, company cars. And when you don't have the firm anymore, you don't have those as uh, as expenses so uh, it's something that you have to think about uh, you know there's so many variables to getting out uh, but I know I definitely don't want to be that person who has a heart attack at their desk uh, you know and, and it gets well, I don't, I don't say I would I don't wish that upon you but if I had to give an over under of who's still working after 80 uh, I have a distinct feeling it might be Jay Ruane. hell no Hell no! And this is a, this Hell is a no. movie. This is like, we, we, I, I, we, I, we, let's put some money on it. Back and forth. <laughs> I, I, how about uh, bagel and locks at the uh, the bagel tree? In, in, uh, oh, I was going to say I want a bitcoin. Let's buy. Let's each buy a bitcoin now. And if I'm still working at eighty, uh, that I'll give you my bitcoin. <laughs> but I know you said you don't want to gamble that much. I've been with you. I, I've been with you in Vegas. I was just talking to some friends about how uh, we were at Legacy Stadium for your fiftieth. And I got there at seven o'clock in the morning and stayed there till eight o'clock at night watching football and gambling all day. And you must have come in and out of there like a dozen times because you couldn't sit still. You watch the Giants game and then you're like, "No, no, it was." It, and this was the thing about Lagasse, which is it's such a fun spot. Oh, but it is, it, it is like when you're there with your friends from your entire your entire life shows up in Vegas. It's uh, everybody wants to go in their own direction. But that was a great trip. Uh, Fifty two this October after MTMP. Wow. Jeez, uh, people are looking for trips. So is that it? You're making the announcement now at the Seth's <laughs> birthday party is in Las Vegas. We can't go back yeah, to yeah. Legacy Stadium. COVID knocked it out. It's gone forever, yeah. which is a shame. Oh, which is bad. a shame. Don't, don't put so, something back. Oh, I'm sure they will. Okay, folks. So we've gone long. We've gone really long this week, but I think you got something good out of it. Of course, you can always catch us every week, every Thursday live here at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 p.m. Pacific on our Facebook page, as well as all the other Facebook groups that we're syndicated to. If you don't want to watch us live, if you want to take us on the go, our show is always syndicated through the Maximum Lawyer podcast, or you can download Maximum Growth Live wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to get other information about the duplicate content issue we talked about at the top of the show Seth's on his Blue Shark page and on his own pages has the SEO Insider where he really interviews and talks all about uh, topics just like that uh, with some of the movers and shakers in SEO uh, and it's amazing to me you know somebody who's sort of bounced around the fringes of that industry over the last 20 years to see the names of people that you're getting on that show I mean we're talking people who you know I find Followed on Twitter, I've seen speak at seminars, and you've got these conversations are just phenomenal uh, from a, from just a, a knowledge base, uh, and there's really no agenda there, which is phenomenal. So I highly recommend that you check it out. Of course, folks. Be sure to sign up for Maximum LawCon uh, that's coming up this October. I know Seth, you'll be presenting. I know I'm going to be presenting. That's going to be a phenomenal show. And of course, if you want to talk more about the role of systems in your practice, be sure to join our Systemizing Your Law Firm for Growth Facebook group. We're happy to have you. Every week I post different systems. Uh, this week and this month we're doing a lot of stuff about how to manage employees. So that's it all for you folks today. Uh, a lot of good stuff here. Please make sure you watch this again. You know, I'm going to go back like I do most weeks and, and and take an audit of everything that I need to work on. But there was some great stuff. Seth, any parting words for everybody? 
you know, just uh, have a, a great week, great weekend, and we'll see you next week. Awesome. Folks, thank you so much. This has been another edition of Maximum Growth Live with Seth Price and Jay Ruane. Uh, we will see you next Thursday here on another edition of Maximum Growth Live. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to Maximum Growth Live. Please remember to subscribe to our podcast for the latest episodes and tune in live on Facebook every Thursday for our live show. For more information, visit Maximum Growth Live on Facebook or MaximumLawyer.com and be sure to share us with your friends.